Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. There's postcard Vancouver, shining oceans, sparkling peaks. Then there's the gritty, grinding part that is a busy working seaport. Cargo ships pulling in and sailing out, tugboats buzzing in and around them, barges, and in season, of course, cruise ships. All of those and the terminals that serve them aren't yet emissions-free. Far from it. But there are efforts underway here and around the world to set sail for a cleaner industry. Also today, harnessing the power of solar in the land of oil and gas. Reader email and a peek at a new TV show on climate change that may just persuade you to eat dirt. (laughs) Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. I'm standing on the water's edge looking out at all the ships anchored in the harbour here. 24 hours a day the work goes on, loading, unloading, heading in, heading out. The port of Vancouver is the largest in Canada, but there's only so much I can see and tell you about from here. So let's head out on the water for a mini tour. Hi, I'm Ronan Chester. I'm the Director of Climate Action and Sustainability Leadership for the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority. Vessels make up about 60% of the greenhouse gas emissions for the port. Uh, Of course, you're going to also be looking at the rail, uh, looking at trucking, and looking at the terminal operations, which is what we're kind of seeing right here. But 60% is really coming from marine vessels, so a lot of that has to be thinking about what are the different types of fuels and technologies that will come to play for for vessels. And of course, vessels are all different shapes and sizes. There's big ones here. We're on a small one at the moment. And so it's going to look different for, uh, for probably these different types of ships. Earlier we went by Centurm. That terminal is a really important container terminal. It actually has a new shore power enabled berth this year as part of the expansion of the terminal. Um, They also have five new zero emission uh, electric rail mounted cranes or gantries that have been installed in the terminal. I guess this is all just part of our general uh, kind of collaborative air strategy we have with the Port of Seattle, Port of Tacoma, Port of uh, the Northwest Seaport Alliance. We have the Northwest Ports Clean Air Strategy. So this is a collaborative air strategy across the border really to phase out all port related emissions by 2050. And so in the spirit of doing that, then today we're taking a look at some of the different uh, demonstrations or tests that we're doing with industry to try to kind of understand what fuels and technologies can come to play. I mean, the port here really is an economic engine for the country. Canada, you know, 43% approximately of trade outside of North America is going through this uh, port here for Canadians. So, you know, it's really important that we think about how to decarbonize that economic engine, how we can make that an opportunity for us as British Columbians and as Canadians. And so that really is about an energy transition. It's thinking about how to get different types of increasingly lower carbon intensity fuels and technologies into the port, into heavy duty transportation. And by doing that, we can continue to get the good things that the port continues 
to deliver, but doing that in a way that's lower and lower impact. We have to find a way to get this port to a zero emission port. That's that's our vision for this uh, for this port. So uh, projects like we're looking at today are really just the beginnings of that, of ways that we test and get that kind of collaboration started between industry, uh, port authority, government, other players who have different ideas about what technology needs to come to play in this transition. So the Port Authority says it's trying to do its part to become net zero by 2050, but at the same time, it's working with Fortis BC, the province's natural gas supplier, to expand the ability to fuel ships with LNG liquid natural gas. That project, still yet to be approved, doesn't sit well with Alison Brown. She's with the international nonprofit organization Pacific Environment. The shipping industry has kind of touted LNG as a transition fuel. And as we see it, LNG is not a transition fuel. It's only furthering our reliance on fossil fuels and continuing this benefit that fossil companies are receiving, you know, off the backs of our public health and the well-being of our planet. The Port Authority says in a written statement that it's working with Fortis precisely because it believes LNG will be increasingly in demand until other kinds of cleaner fuels are developed. Now, just in the last few days, Vancouver played host to the first International Green Ship Conference, organized by the Vancouver Maritime Centre for the Climate. It's a non-profit group that was formed by industry. Elizabeth Charmley is a co-founder and co-chair of the centre, something that she turned to after years of working as a naval architect and engineer. Hello. Hi there. Now, as I said, you're a naval architect and an engineer, but it was actually something personal that drove you to help create this organization to try to decarbonize shipping? Definitely. I am a mom. I have two sons. Um, I I have a two and a half year old and a five and a half year old. And when I became a mom for the first time uh, in 2017 with my first child, um, you know, like most young moms, you have your first child. um, They cry a lot. It can be quite a shock. And you're just there, you know, with your baby. And one of the things I took comfort in was walking. Uh, We live uh, in the suburbs of Vancouver. Um, on a street that borders the forest on a mountainside and behind us, um, there's no provincial park or anything. It's just the woods. And one day we were walking in the trails in our neighborhood and I thought, you know, I'm going to turn right instead of going left. And we turned into this beautiful forest. And there I was with this little, you know, three, four, five month old baby on my chest, napping, sleeping, he would wake up and I'd, you know, be in the woods next to a nice creek in the summer with the natural air conditioning, you know, nursing, talking, cooing with my baby. And as I was looking around, I thought, you know, this is really the place where I became a mom. And when I returned to work, I knew a lot of the projects I was working on had impact globally to reduce maritime emissions. But I thought, you know, this ecosystem where I grew up as a mom and really gained my sea legs, so to speak, as a mother um, with my child, I could be doing something here in our province, bringing that same skill set that I used on a international level to work here in our province um, to bring change and leave a legacy for my two children. So one day when they asked me, you know, Mama, what did you do when, you know, our province was burning and flooding and literally washing away before our eyes? And then I could say to them, you know, well, Mama founded the Maritime Decarbonization Hub. It's still here today. They helped implement technology. They brought industry together. They 
did their best to procure funding and all these things. I think it's really important for us to think about our accountability, not only to our children and subsequent generations, but to the land that we have here and what our legacy and responsibility is um, as change makers or senior people or you know career professionals to make sure that we are taking care of that uh, the natural world for future generations to come. All right, let's dig into this a little bit more then. What percentage of emissions is the shipping industry responsible for globally? So the maritime sector accounts for roughly 3.6 million tonnes of CO2 per year in British Columbia, which is 8.8 million tonnes in Canada. And this is over 1 billion tonnes worldwide and represents close to 3% of total annual emissions. Okay, well, let's start with deep sea ships and the, the like container cargo ships. What yeah. are the options for decarbonizing those? Well, there is a limited number of um, ways a ship itself, because it is a closed and isolated system, um, that it can be optimized to make sure that it is uh, fully zero or it's decarbonized. Um, And one of those ways is through hydrodynamic optimization of the ship. So this is through retrofitting of the bulbous bow, the propeller. It can also occur at the new build design phase, where vessels are optimized for a specific speed or the way that they're going to operate when they're on the ocean in terms of their hull form design. Um, likewise, that sounds like making it more sleek, really. That's what we're talking about, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It has to do with like how the water is moving around the shape of the whole surface of the ship, just like aerodynamics, except for ships, hydrodynamics. Okay. And then the other one, yeah. the big one, obviously, would be how those ships are fueled. So how far along are the various options for alternative fuels? The only real way for vessels to get to zero is through switching to alternative fuels. So for deep sea vessels like uh, container ships, you know, tank bulk carriers, they really have to switch to a fuel where there is uh, zero emissions associated with it. Unfortunately, a lot of the land-based infrastructure and even supply of the fuels that we might be looking at to get there is just not available right now. LNG is, you know, ships have been burning LNG for a while from LNG carriers. Um, About 20 years it's taken for infrastructure to get to the point where we are now. So the deep sea shipping industry, they don't have the option to switch to electric. They are looking at the transition fuel, which is LNG, but... And that's liquid natural gas. Exactly, yeah. Um, but it is considered a transition fuel because of the methane slip associated with that. And the methane slip is, you know, just uh, happening when the LNG is moving through the engine or different pipes. And the industry is aware of this and they want to make sure to either mitigate or fully eliminate the methane release into the atmosphere uh, because um, they recognize that. Uh, methane has impact on global warming of magnitude compared to carbon. And so this is why industry leaders like Maersk have decided to step right over LNG and go to methanol. I just want to ask one other little question that's closer to home. It's just a thing I'm curious about. Fortis BC is listed as a member of the Vancouver Maritime Centre for Climate website. And that just makes me wonder what, what kind of influence the fossil fuel industry has on your organization. Yeah, well, VMCC, uh, we are industry-led and driven. We are not funded or supported by any one organization. We are uh, governed by a steering committee of 24 industry professionals. We have two seats for each industry sector, and Fortis is one of them. Um, But I think the oil and gas industry gets a bad reputation um, because of what I mentioned earlier regarding LNG 
being a transition fuel and methane and whatnot. But the reality is when you sit and talk with their CEOs and executives, they themselves are making plans um, to transition and supply the greener fuels. And I think it's important to note that when we talk about the global energy transition, we're not talking about the global energy stop. We're talking about the global energy transition. And so part of that comes down to sitting, talking with people, um, you know, leading them and saying, okay, here's where we need to go and getting everybody on side. The reality is we don't want to leave people behind or have oil and gas companies continuing in their old ways. If they are part of coalitions like VMCC, then we know they are on board with getting to zero, decarbonizing and reaching these targets. It's it's a, it's something that obviously we noticed and I think other people would do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we don't consider it a problem because like I said, it take, takes all kinds to get this job done. Um, and if they're, we're not signing up to their mandate, they're signing on to ours, um, which is to decarbonize. Canada is one of 22 countries that committed last year to establishing green shipping corridors. There are supposed to be six of them globally. For those who've never heard of them, what is a green shipping corridor? Green shipping corridors are actually a wonderful concept. Um, Currently, green shipping corridors, none of them actually exist yet, which is basically a zero emissions shipping route between ports. So it can be a commitment between those two port cities or a third one. And there is actually a Pacific Northwest ports um, commitment that's been made between Seattle, Vancouver, and Juneau for the cruise ship industry. The great thing about green shipping corridors is that they take a global challenge and they break it into a localized scale. So what's really neat about this is when you have a commitment between uh, port cities, it enables the whole supply chain feeding that uh, port and terminal operation, as well as the clean tech specifically for the blue ocean economy and supporting that industry to decarbonize and get to a zero emissions as well. So it enables faster coordination between the fuel infrastructure, as well as the ships traveling between the ports. And it's just really a great way to just uh, drive the local economic growth, uh, innovation, supply, all these sorts of things that are required in order to Uh, feed the global trade, but also the regional shipping uh, and maritime industry as well. Now, the cost of transforming the whole industry is estimated at between 1 trillion and 1.4 trillion US dollars. How how should that necessary transformation be paid for? Well, I think there's a certain amount that um, is accountable to the operators now. Uh, because the reality is the cost for them to make these changes now will be substantially less than it will be by the time these targets and commitments are made. There are targets for 2030 and 2050 as well, which the global maritime industry uh, is facing. Vessels are expensive to operate. There's a lot of planning and maintenance that go into them, and they're trying to prolong the life of their assets for as long as possible. And really, um, we'll start to see a change in industry when these things are regulated. Industry tends to move when regulations come down the pipeline. Okay, so then then let's talk about opportunities, though, because the transformation could present jobs, other economic benefits. What about those? That is a really great point, because right now, none of the shoreside infrastructure exists for those alternative fuels. So there is potential um, to train and employ transition the current workforce to those positions, as well as bring up the next generation in these well-paying jobs 
to support those positions that will be created to educate them in the new technologies. Now, you just finished the first Green Ship Conference recently in Vancouver. Yeah. I'm wondering what are your biggest takeaways from the event? I think the shipping industry, because of the 3% global emissions and the amount that they are emitting, they tend to get a bad reputation. Yet when you, if you were at Greenship, you came to our conference, you heard what people are talking about, industry is aware, um, they're taking the necessary steps and they're very motivated and proud of what they are doing. Elizabeth Charmley, thank you so much. Okay, thank you so much. And just one more note on this, Fortis BC also says LNG is about energy transition and that it's better than bunker oil or diesel when it comes to emissions and air pollutants. It also told us newer ship engines are leaking little or no methane when they operate. But Pacific Environment's Allison Brown says leaking methane is just one of the problems and that LNG causes methane emissions throughout its cycle from extraction to transport to the burning of the fuel. Now, at that green ship conference that we've been talking about, there was a presentation about some vessels that are actually moving past fossil fuels, and they'll soon be chugging into the port of Vancouver very quietly. Electric tugboats. They were designed by a Vancouver naval architecture firm, and they do have backup diesel generators for safety. But they're designed to run on rechargeable batteries for all of their day-to-day operations, What on Earth producer Rachel Sanders went out to the Green Ship Conference to find out more. So I'm Vince Den Hertog. I'm the Vice President of Engineering at Robert Allen Limited. I've been with Robert Allen Limited for just over 20 years. Okay, can you set the scene for me? Uh, Where are we here and what have you been hearing today? Uh, Well, we're at the VMCC uh, Green Ship Conference today and um, we're talking about all kinds of things related to green shipping, decarbonization of shipping. So we're hearing from both local operators, port authorities, you know, quite a broad spectrum of different uh, stakeholders who are all interested in the same thing, reducing carbon emissions from shipping. And one of your, one of the people with your company is here talking about one of your latest projects, which is electric tugboats. Yeah, so we have designed basically a battery-powered tugboat for a local towing company, which has actually an international presence as well, but it's uh, Sam Towage. And so they've ordered two 23-meter battery electric tugs, which are currently being built in Turkey by a shipyard there that we've designed for them. Uh, so yeah, they, they're basically powered by batteries. So when they do their thing, they come back and they plug into uh, power, kind of like you would recharge an electric car. And then after about an hour, hour and a half, the uh, tug is recharged and it's ready to go again. And this is fairly new, isn't it? Uh, It is new. These will be among the first battery electric tugs to be operated in North America and certainly here in the Port of Vancouver. There are a few other tug examples out in the world. Port of Auckland has one. There's another one being constructed for the Port of San Diego. We're excited about it and it's interesting to see how quickly they're being built and how much interest there is in these new battery electric tugs. What are the challenges with electrifying tugboats? You know, for the operators, one of the biggest challenges is really, you know, the cost. It costs a lot. The batteries that are in them, like in a Tesla or other electric cars, they're lithium-ion batteries, very similar. So it comes with a cost. But you save a lot of money, you know, over the years as you save money on not buying fuel. Uh, But I think it's sort of accepting the fact that that payback is going to take, you know, a number of years is something that operators have had to sort of take time to digest. 
And I, I also think the environment's become different now. There's much more interest by operators and the people they work for to reduce carbon emissions here in the port. What will these particular tugs be used for? There's, there's a number of different types of tugs that are used for different purposes. Is that right? Yeah, very, very much so. So these particular tugs are used for berthing and unberthing ships that you would find in Vancouver Harbour. There are larger tugs, and some of these larger tugs are used for things like escorting ships sort of beyond the limits of the harbour. And so those type of larger escort tugs, they're not at present really amenable to battery power type of operation. So they, for those type of tugs, we're also looking at alternatives to reduce carbon emissions, things like alternative fuels, methanol, ammonia, those kinds of fuels are of great interest right now. You know, it, it would be nice if there was a one-size-fits-all solution for this, but it's very much a case of uh, different solutions for different uh, operating requirements, especially when it comes to tugs. Okay, and then when it comes to scaling this up, one of the challenges is infrastructure at the dock itself, isn't it? Yes, very much so. That is very much on the on the minds of the operators. Bringing the power down to the dock where you can use it to recharge your tug is can be very expensive. We're talking about lots of power, you know, 2,000 kilowatts sometimes, that kind of thing. And so you need big cables, and if you have to travel, uh, run those cables over long distances from the grid, it gets very expensive. And it's not the kind of thing they can handle on their own. It's really crucial, especially at this point, when the technology is reasonably new, to involve different stakeholders, the ports, the government, the utility companies. That all has to be something they're all talking about and moving together towards to make this uh, work for those operators. Do you have thoughts about what is needed to push things along faster? I can sort of share some of my personal opinions. You know, it's very difficult because it is such a complex sort of a challenge, I think, right? It's hard to point to any one thing that'll make this happen, right? Certainly the will is, is, is certainly important. I think what comes up time and time again, just my observation is that people actually would like to have more regulation around this. And I think shipping companies, the will is there. They want to do it, but they want the even playing field. And international shipping, fundamentally, it's a bit challenging to regulate because it's an international kind of, um, it's just the way it works. It's an international kind of effort, shipping. And then there's an international maritime organization, which is basically kind of the one governing body for international shipping. But even they are a move kind of slowly. And I, and I think if there are more regulations, even sort of based in on ports and what ships can operate in and out of ports and more government support at a kind of a federal level, it would go a long way. Yeah. What do you expect to change in the coming years? What are you keeping in mind as you design your new, uh, your new vessels and your, your new, t- new technology? Well, I think what we're going to see is as like the electric tugs we've been talking about enter operation, right? And people start to gain experience with them. What we're expecting to see is that people will see how to work them into their existing operations and we'll really start to see the benefits, right? From things that that are beyond just sort of lower emissions, but things like reduced maintenance and, and maybe even when it comes to tugs, it's important for them to be really responsive and maneuverable. We expect these electric tugs to be that kind of thing. So we expect the process to be a bit like, you know, where electric cars were a few years ago where they start with a few on the road and suddenly there's a lot of uptake and I also think that we are going to see as the infrastructure gets installed that that's only going to help the situation Thank you very much for your time Thanks for your interest, it was a pleasure talking to you
Now, Vancouver's two new electric tugboats are due to glide into the harbour by the middle of next year. Now, in case all of you out there who like to go in sailboats or kayak or stand-up paddleboard, I know I didn't include you in this discussion, (laughs) and I know you are all emissions-free, but we're trying to focus right now on working seaports and shipping because it just is such a hard sector to decarbonize. So it's interesting to hear about where the discussion and the debate and the action is at. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. So the other day I was taking my puppy Mickey for a walk in the woods and I met up with someone whose voice might sound very familiar to What on Earth listeners. I know we've been trying to get our dogs together forever and I'm so happy to meet Mickey. <laughs> I'm really happy to meet Rodney and they like each, they other. Like each other. Yeah, Mickey likes Rodney who is in fact a gorgeous Bernese mountain dog and the voice you're hearing there is that of Johanna Wagstaff who is a meteorologist and a science reporter at CBC in Vancouver. And now she's the host of a climate show. You can watch it on a new free streaming channel. The first episode takes place in the woods, so it only made sense to meet Johanna and Rodney there to find out more about it. Johanna, hello. Hi, Laura. So tell me about this new show. What's it about? What's its name? What are you trying to do? It's called Planet Wonder. I like that. Thank you. Yes, it took a long time to get there, but I think that really sort of encapsulates what the show is about. The show is a climate change show, but we're coming at it from a different direction. We're asking an interesting question. And along the way to answering that question, we're going to take all the rabbit holes. So each episode is themed. Our first one is about trees. But the question that we're going to answer is, are trees talking to each other about climate change? And hopefully on the way, we'll take all of those sides and tangential uh, rabbit holes to truly understand the relationship between trees and climate change. And hopefully uh, viewers will come away feeling empowered with information and empowered with solutions. Uh, We're actually standing in the forest here in North Vancouver. We live fairly close to one another. We both bring our dogs up here. So we see lots of trees around us. Who did you talk to about whether trees can speak to each other? Oh, Laura, I'm so excited. I know you know her too. Suzanne Samard, who is uh, the tree scientist uh, out of University of British Columbia, but she has been working on tree science for decades and is really the one that brought forward this idea that trees communicate. Uh, Before Suzanne's work, uh, most uh, people, especially in the logging industry, thought trees competed uh, with one another for sunlight and nutrients, and she really uh, opened the world's eyes to the fact that they work together. So I'm thrilled that her and I are in the forest digging and eating dirt. Digging and eating dirt. Yes, I said eating. She convinced me that the top layer of soil, the humus, uh, is actually quite tasty 
and not I, hummus, humus. Yeah, not yeah, not it does not taste like hummus. I'll tell you that. It's, it's more like a gritty chocolate. But that in itself, uh, it's full of all these amazing uh, de- decomposing uh, mushrooms, and that's what gives it this great earthy taste. And that's the network underground that trees used to communicate with. And that's interesting because you and I both bring our dogs here, and I don't know about your dog, but Mickey, my dog kind of likes eating dirt sometimes. I thought the same though. First of all, I needed to make sure that the the dirt we were eating definitely had not been visited by dogs. <laughs> but yes, uh, it kind of makes you wonder. This is why maybe animals get down in there. It was it was quite tasty and full of information. Well, I'm looking forward to this. Can you tell us when, where to watch? Because I think it's a different kind of viewing experience for people. Yeah, I, I'm hoping it's going to be a brand new viewing experience. This is part of CBC's new digital streaming first uh, platform. It's called CBC News Explore, and you can watch it wherever you watch uh, streaming live television. And, you know, we're hoping that we catch the attention of uh, people who are maybe not watching cable or looking for new ways to consume news. And it's really exciting to have a blank slate. Wow, okay. Planet Wonder with Johanna Wagstaff from one climate change host to another. Good luck. That is the best. Thank you, Laura. (laughs) Now, here's a little taste, pardon the pun, of Johanna Wagstaff and Suzanne Simard eating dirt on Planet Wonder. Okay, we can't, we can't leave without you telling me how and why we're going to eat dirt. Because my three and a half year old wants to know. So one of the cool ways that we can tell the difference between organic material from the mineral soil we want to know you know if we're dealing with one or the other because most of the mycorrhizal network is is in the organic material okay I love dirt okay so I put some in my mouth yeah can you hear it crunching yes okay now I know it's mineral does it taste good (laughs) so good Uh, the the gritty stuff yeah it's really good should I try some try it yeah it's really nice It's really good for your bowels, too. We'll get that off, we'll get that off camera. <laughs> Actually, it's not bad. It's not bad. I'm not so sure Johanna was convinced <laughs> about eating dirt, but you're going to want to watch all of episode one of Planet Wonder to see whether Johanna's adorable son, Wesley, agrees with Suzanne that dirt is really nice. Um, Planet Wonder is on CBC News Explore, a new free streaming channel. You can find it on CBC Gem at cbcnews.ca, on the CBC News app, and the Roku channel. When it comes to talking about energy in Alberta and climate change, the oil sands are usually at the centre of the conversation. But in the petroleum-producing province, a renewable boom is underway, specifically wind and solar. What on Earth producer Molly Siegel has been looking into solar electricity in Alberta, and she joins me now. Hi, Molly. Hi, Laura. And here you are sitting right beside me in the studio, which hasn't happened, I don't think, ever in the course of our program because we were born in a pandemic, so we were separate. Here we are together. Yes, so nice to be here in our cozy studio. It is very cozy. Um, You people out there, you listeners may think we have a very grand place, but... It's very cozy. Anyway, we should get back to matters at hand. Um, We're going, for the moment, to shelve talk about wind, 
power and instead take a deep dive into solar, right? Yeah, and not just solar, at solar in Alberta. Um, and, and as you know, I, I lived there for a number of years and I can report anecdotally from my own experience that there are two very noteworthy things uh, about the weather in the province. And one is the wind. It's, it is so windy there. And then the other is the sun, even on a day that's like minus 40 you know, very cold, but it'll still be a, a bluebird day. Well, okay. So that makes me think about solar. How is the solar boom unfolding? Well, we'll get into the big stuff later. You know, the markets and the grids. The exciting stuff. The exciting stuff. <laughs> but first, I want to introduce you to someone. My name is Randall Benson, and I'm in Edmonton, Alberta. I own a company called Gridworks Energy Group Incorporated, and we are a solar contractor. Um, and we are an Indigenous-owned solar contractor. Benson grew up south of Fort McMurray. Now, as you know, Fort McMurray is a community built around the oil sands. Being from Fort McMurray, of course, I mean, uh, if you're not planning on moving away as a young person, uh, you're probably going to be stuck with working at the plants there in the oil sands, which is absolutely fine. Most of my family that are still up there are working either directly or directly with oil sands. I did that as well for, for a short while, and I found out that it just wasn't for me. You know, these are long days and difficult hours, and that was part of the reason that it wasn't for him. But also... Personally, I just found it counterintuitive to how I was raised to respect our environment. And so I, I made a decision to find something that was kind of opposite. Now, that wasn't so much climate change at the time for him. It was really more about the impact of industry on the environment and the animals downstream. He didn't actually know what was the opposite of working in the oil sands. You know, what would that look like? But he moved to Edmonton because he knew it wasn't in Fort McMurray. This was the mid-90s. And one day, he's, he, he was flipping through a magazine, and he came across an article. And it was all about solar power and other renewable sources. And uh, it really intrigued me. And so I decided to pursue that. Just like that. <laughs> so his company, Gridworks, was born out of browsing through a magazine? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it, of course, it wasn't called Gridworks at first. That came later. But today, he's been in business for more than 20 years. The solar projects he works on include residential. So, you know, those are the small scale, the, the panels that you would see on someone's home. He also works on commercial buildings. And now the company also is doing utility scale projects. So that means uh, projects that are designed to generate power to go onto the grid. Gridworks has its first two of these projects, and one of them just broke ground last month in November at Métis Crossing. That's about an hour and a half drive northwest of Edmonton. Randall Benson is also a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta. Okay, but I want to hear more about, the, more about the project. Is it part of this boom? It sounds like it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Métis Crossing is a cultural center in Smoky Lake County. The Métis Nation of Alberta says that this project is designed to generate enough electricity to power approximately 1,200 homes. So they're planning to sell this power back to the grid at market price, they want to put that money back into the community. But, you know, it really is about more than just money and, and making money off the project. I spoke to Audrey Putra, the president of the Métis Nation of Alberta, and she says in 2017, the nation passed its Climate Action Plan. 
We heard our citizens loud and clear. You need to do something about climate change. We need to be part of it. Uh, we know how it's affecting our wildlife populations. We know how it affects, um, in some cases, the availability of traditional medicines and plants. So taking all of that into consideration with the action plan we have in place, that's how we began doing the things that we needed to do to try to uh, do better in the whole climate change area. And in building this project, they are hiring mostly Indigenous companies and employees. All right, let's 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 just go through this. We've heard about one former fossil fuel worker's story of transition and the Métis Nation of Alberta's own climate goals. All, all of the stories, I think, are part of a bigger transition you're telling us about that's underway in Alberta toward more renewables. So tell me what's happening in the province overall when it comes to solar. There's a lot happening. Uh, I chatted with Sarah Hastings Simon. She's the director of the Masters in Sustainable Energy Development Program at the University of Calgary. So she's an expert in energy, innovation, and climate policy and where those things come together. So I think it's fair to say the majority of solar that we have in the system in, in Alberta today was installed in, you know, 2021, 2022. So this is a really very recent phenomenon when it comes to the province of Alberta. Okay, I get it. There's a lot happening, but how much? Uh, okay, to explain, I'm, if you don't mind, just going to get a little bit into the policy here, a little policy heavy. So stay with me, Laura. Okay, everybody out there, get ready. I know, But one thing I will assure listeners is that you can explain it in crystal clear terms. There's your challenge. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So the vast majority of electricity in Alberta is still generated from fossil fuels, but there is more renewable energy coming online every month, basically. And in 2021 alone, there were eight new, like, large-scale solar farms. In Alberta, individuals can also contribute to this. Uh, If you have solar panels on your home, um, if you don't need the electricity at any given point, uh, that can be sold back to the grid. A specific number, however, you know, what percentage is being generated from solar, you know, it's changing constantly, especially with new projects uh, being built and, and getting connected. According to a paper from Hastings Simon and her colleagues in 2021, renewables, so this is uh, solar, wind, and hydro, in total accounted for 14.3% of electricity on the grid. And of course, Laura, that's not including everything that's come online in 2022. And, And that's so interesting because we don't think of that when we think about Alberta. And this is clearly a boom that is come upon us, it seems like out of nowhere. I mean, until recently, uh, it it really didn't seem like solar was a major player. Here's Hastings Simon again. Uh, You know, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg. If there's no buyers, then there's no projects that get developed. And if there's no projects in the market, then there are no, you know, buyers that are kind of there. So a few things happened in Alberta that broke this cycle. When former NDP Premier Rachel Notley was in power, the province started something called the Renewable Energy Program. There were no solar projects selected from that that program. However, Hastings Simon says it sent a message to corporate buyers. Hey, a renewable energy market is taking off here in Alberta. There's opportunity. But then in 2018, the province also put out a request specifically for solar projects. Alberta Infrastructure wanted to use that electricity for its own operations. And so what the government did by having their procurement processes really helped to break that kind of chicken and egg cycle by saying, OK, well, you know, we're going to buy some projects um, and that gets that ball rolling. 
So, Laura, that's one ingredient that kicked things off. Now, also, Alberta's electricity is deregulated. So this is another factor. Ontario is also deregulated. The Alberta Electric System Operator is a not-for-profit organization, and that organization purchases power off of the open market. All of that was happening while the price of solar was was coming down in a province that has, you know, quite a good solar resource. And so, you know, all those things sort of coming together at the same time, along with uh, the carbon price and the ability for some buyers to actually, you know, use the solar offsets to meet their carbon compliance costs. Sort of the perfect storm that, you know, created this really like almost gold rush level activity for solar in the province now. I love that use of the phrase gold rush level activity. It makes you think about not only the, the original gold rush, but but what the kind of language that was being used around things like the oil sands in, in years gone by. That, that that really brings this into focus. Right. It's like a, a gusher of solar energy. <laughs> now, she also alluded to carbon compliance. I'm making air quotes around that. Is that actually the carbon tax? Yeah, she's talking about the carbon tax here. A solar power plant could be used as a carbon offset in order to comply with the carbon tax. And a quick side note, there's a lot of news out of Alberta about Premier Danielle Smith's Alberta Sovereignty Act and her intent to challenge federal legislation. However, just a reminder here, some of our listeners may recall the federal carbon tax was already challenged and was held up by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2021. Right. And I know our listeners are pretty good at paying attention to all the ins and outs of this. So to comply with the carbon tax, that's why we're seeing fossil fuel companies investing in solar and wind. Yeah, it can actually be like the cheapest way to comply with with the carbon tax is what Sarah Hastings Simon says. Now, the motivation's got to be more than just that now that that chicken and egg cycle has been actually broken. Yeah, absolutely. There can be many reasons uh, to get involved in this. Energy security and community development, or maybe it's an investment to generate revenue. Or maybe it's a company that has net zero targets that are set by shareholders, or the company wants to fall in line with other businesses. Hastings Simon says it's this mix of factors that is also driving the boom in solar projects. There is there is one big name that comes to mind when we talk about this, and that's Traverse Solar. That that's, I think that's Alberta's largest single project, correct? Yeah, I mean, not just Alberta's largest; it, it's Canada's largest solar project. And in 2021, CBC reported that Traverse had signed an agreement to sell a lot of electricity directly to Amazon. Oh wow! So can you can you paint us a picture then of this solar farm? Yes. It pictures southern Alberta farmland, but instead of looking out the window at crops or, you know, rolling pasture, you're looking at a sea of solar arrays. Okay. That, that's southern Alberta, which I know from experience is, is a very sunny place. And that's not just anecdotal, is it? No, no. I, I, there's uh, this great map uh, from the federal government that actually color codes the solar potential across Canada. So, you know, blue where there's not very much potential all the way to like a, a deep, dark orange. And and there's one of those hot spots from southern Alberta uh, running along the prairies to western Manitoba. And the Traverse Project is there. It's in Vulcan County, Alberta. I spoke to the county's Reeve, Jason Schneider. Okay, Reeve. <laughs> some some listeners may not be familiar with that term. Um, it, it's it's like a 
uh, it's the same as a mayor, really, but it's uh, it's most often used for, for someone who's in charge of or elected head of a county instead of a town or a village. Yeah, that's right, Laura. Oh, full, yay. Points for me. Grades. Yay. <laughs> so Vulcan County used to have two main sources of revenue, farming and fossil fuels. But in recent years, some fossil fuel companies went out of business. We saw uh, a lot of companies walk away from their obligations as well as uh, abandoned properties. And uh, therefore, we weren't able to collect any taxes on those. So, uh, you know, we, we cut our budget by 30 percent. Wow, that is a big shortfall. Yeah, it, it really was. So seeing these new solar developments, for him, it, it's not necessarily about the jobs. Because once construction is over, each project doesn't have like a huge number of employees to run it. Uh, Reeve Schneider says the benefit here really is the money coming into the county. I think the biggest benefit to our local residents is obviously the, the tax that's going to come off of it. It, it subsidizes everything everything we do, right? Uh, I mean, it's it's paying for libraries, it's paying for roads, it's paying for bridges, it's, it's paying for a lot of things. Now, renewables make up 45% of the county's revenue, he says. Okay, you're talking about all renewables, but how much of that is solar? He says about 25% is solar, 20% is wind. Fossil fuels still account for about another 25%, and then the rest would be from property tax. But really, this this number is in flux. It's changing every month as things there are just unfolding so quickly. All right. Well, what's going up and what's going down then? Is there a trend? Yeah. As, as more uh, renewable projects, so as more wind and solar come online, that means, uh, you know, as these projects are built, um, the county gets more money from those. Are Reeve Schneider's constituents happy about this boom in renewables that, are, that, that, as you say, is refilling the county's coffers? Well, the answer is a bit complicated because when the first renewable project, which was a wind farm, when that was built about nine years ago, he says reaction was actually really positive. And he thinks the location of the Travers project makes sense. He says it's on a low-producing land. So it's marginal land for farming, I guess. Yes, exactly. So, you know, there have been examples of this going really well, of the community being uh, really consulted um, and talked to and listened to. Um, But he says that as things are picking up, as other companies are looking to break ground, you know, this attitude from the community is is changing a bit. It's um, people are starting to tell him that they don't think they're being talked to enough. They don't think these companies are, are doing enough um, due diligence in the community. And they worry that it's not just marginal land, but that some farmland is is getting leased for projects. As we've gone down the road and these concerns haven't been addressed, it's unfortunately put kind of a sour um, taste in some people's mouths and it's making it difficult. It's making it it's making it difficult to see the positives um, when when people feel like they're getting ignored. Oh, it's always the way these kinds of things develop. People are concerned. They have what they think are very legitimate concerns, and they often are. So that kind of makes the process a little bit more challenging to to carry out. What's the province of Alberta saying about that? I I did reach out to them about the concerns that Reeve Schneider raised with me. These projects get approval through the Alberta Utilities Commission. So that's the province's independent energy regulator. Now, in an email, a spokesperson for the province said the Utilities Commission decides if a project is within the public interest and needs consultation. And there is also a public hearing process. But what about the point that that Reeve Schneider raised about land? 
Well, it's really up to individuals in Alberta. The province also told me that solar projects can only be built on private land. So basically, if a landowner decides, hey, I am interested in leasing this piece of my land uh, for a solar project, it's up to them, it's up to the company they're working with, as long as it gets regulatory approval. All right, we're, we're at now this point where we've heard about Canada's biggest solar farm and a community solar project at Métis Crossing. Yeah, but I, I do have one other smaller example here. I also spoke to Andreas Filea. He's the Métis Nation of Alberta's Director of Environment and Climate Change. Now, as you mentioned, we heard about the Métis Crossing solar project, and that's their biggest project yet. But they do have some smaller distributed solar that's been uh, built for, for years, panels on 37 of their buildings across Alberta. As an example, we partner with our elders caring shelter in Grand Prairie. It's a facility owned by a local there that provides services to Métis elders. And so we were able to line up funding for them so that they can reduce their operational costs so that, you know, they could redirect those savings to better services for their elders, as well as, of course, reducing their GHG emissions. Now, when, when we think about solar, there is such just a huge range. These days, you can see small solar panels that are that are powering all sorts of things, even for this time of year, Christmas lights, um, up to homes that are using them, up to these farmers' fields of solar farms. So where do things go from here? Well, in Alberta, as we've talked about, the market is at work. Things are moving quickly. And the cost of solar is dropping. Investors are buying in for all the reasons we've talked about. So if things keep moving at this pace, Sarah Hastings-Simon, remember the, the climate and policy expert we heard from earlier, says... The next kind of point where more government intervention might be needed again is actually when it comes to the transmission and distribution side where you say, well, you know, are we running out of places to kind of connect some of these projects? Um, And there's different options for what can be done there. Texas provides a really interesting example where they sort of, they had a similar issue where they had, you know, the potential for a lot of renewable energy in one region uh, that was far from the load centers, right? And so you have to build transmission to get the generation from where the renewable resource is to where it's needed. So what the state of Texas did, they built out the transmission lines, assuming that if they were there, that more solar development would follow. Dare I say, if you build it, they will come. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's what Sarah Hastings-Simon thinks. The biggest bang for the buck on the federal government side is really in, in investing in building out those transmission lines. So who knew? Oil country, Alberta, Texas, they're teaching us so much about renewable energy. Thanks, Molly. Thank you, Laura. Recently, we brought you the story of how people in the Caribbean are coping with hurricanes and the international help their leaders are seeking. It was a really personal story for our own Danielle Piper, who was born and raised in Jamaica and whose brother's family had just survived Hurricane Lisa in Belize. And Danielle, we have some feedback. Hi, Laura. Yes. Sonia emailed us with her own experience. She writes, As a child born and raised in Jamaica... I have experienced some serious hurricanes. I used to think our house was in danger and would blow away. I have experienced rivers raised to almost touch the bridge and roads, and that was very interesting. 
yet a bit scary for me and others. Looking outside and seeing the tempest of it all was just so intense. I had to get immune to a storm that would come every year, knowing that it was going to come with full force and that we couldn't do anything about it, but wait until it passed over, hoping that we would all be safe. Thanks for that email, Sonia. Wow, it's it's really, your storytelling really had an impact on Sonia and I'm sure others. And if you want to listen to what Danielle told us in her original story or any of our other past episodes, it's on the CBC Listen app or head to our website. And that's also where you can find the Contact Us link or you can always email us, earth at cbc.ca. And hey, this week, we're hoping to hear from you about the holidays. This can be a time of year full of shopping, feasting, travel, And not to be a downer, but those do add up to emissions. So we want to know what you're doing, if you're doing anything special this year with the climate in mind. No gifts, maybe. Solar-powered lights, vegetarian meal. We'd love you to share your solutions with our listeners. The email address is, again, earth at cbc.ca. A major UN biodiversity conference is taking place in Montreal, and there's a lot at stake as politicians and environmentalists gather from around the world. Scientists warn one million species are at risk of extinction, and they're urging governments to commit to solutions that will reverse biodiversity loss. Canada has set a goal to protect 30% of its lands and oceans by 2030, although the kind of protection is varied. That number is only at about 14% right now. And that means doubling the area of all the national parks, provincial parks, marine conservation areas, and other protected areas in this country in just eight more years. It's an ambitious goal. But according to the World Wildlife Fund's James Snyder, it's essential to show the world Canada is serious about protecting nature. Um, So I think there's tremendous momentum Canada is taking a leadership role, and it's through the lens of Indigenous-led conservation um, or conservation more broadly that supports Indigenous rights and objectives. That is the means by we get uh, to those important targets. Next week on What on Earth, CBC reporter Inayat Singh will explain how Indigenous communities are key to Canada reaching these goals and how they're helping ensure that the newest parks and protected spaces are a blueprint for saving nature during the climate crisis. You'll meet people like Stephanie Thorassi, the executive director of the Seal River Watershed Alliance, and hear about its Indigenous-led proposal to protect a vast swath of northern Manitoba. It is 99.97% pristine, so the watershed is actually fully intact. Uh, There are no disturbances, no industrial development in the watershed whatsoever. For those reasons, because of how remote we are, we are a little piece of heaven in the world that is uh, a little bit uh, unnoticed, and we kind of like it that way. Um, But, you know, we know that there's not a lot of places in the world that exist like this anymore. So we're trying really hard to continue to protect it. Now, we'll have much more on the Seal River Watershed Alliance and on how protecting biodiversity is a climate solution when we bring you a special show next week. Now, 
Now that's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producer Danielle Piper, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. And thanks this week to the CBC's John Hernandez. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.